regardless of what is weighing down upon our very souls this day, you remain ever true, ever dependable, ever reliable. And so with all of our hearts, our minds, our strength, we cast ourselves upon you now. Open your word to us. Feed us from its all-sufficient nourishment. Our hope lies external from us, Lord. It is not found within. And so we look to you and your counsel in your scriptures. Feed us by your grace. In Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. So what do the children of God do when the world seems completely turned upside down? Where do we run as God's people when life goes sideways? Whether personally, professionally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, culturally, in every sense, where do we turn? Well, this question was pressed in upon the German Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the time of the Second World War. Bonhoeffer listened as he heard his fellow German pastor, Hermann Gruner, almost unbelievably state the following. He said, The time has, is fulfilled for the German people of Hitler. It is because of Hitler that Christ, God the Helper and Redeemer, has become effective among us. Hitler is the way of the Spirit and the will of God for the German people to enter the church of Christ. Another pastor would just put it more succinctly. Christ has come to us through Adolf Hitler. Stunning words. And to think that they would fall on ears and masses of people would go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Not so with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How could his countrymen become so deceived as to displace the lordship of Christ with a man as diabolical as Adolf Hitler? Bonhoeffer famously began his ministry career as a stated pacifist, but he did not end holding that same position. He would come to align himself with a failed secret plot to overtake and assassinate Adolf Hitler. This failed plan, though, eventually resulted in him being imprisoned and then hanged in April of 1945, just as the Nazi regime was collapsing. And Bonhoeffer wrote a modern classic called The Cost of Discipleship. And he looked around to his fellow countrymen and he saw that the convenient Christianity was rising with such level of interest and fervor that it caused him to say, what is a Christianity that costs nothing and avoids discomfort at every turn? Bonhoeffer would also write a small booklet on the Psalms, very, very small, almost pamphlet size. And in his chapter on suffering, he would write the following. The Psalms give us ample instruction in how to come before God in a proper way. 
bearing the frequent suffering which this world brings upon us. Serious illness, severe loneliness, threat, persecution, imprisonment, and whatever conceivable peril there is on earth are known by the Psalms. The Psalms do not try to deny suffering or deceive us about its nature with pious words. They allow it to stand as a severe attack on the faith. There is no quick and easy resignation to suffering. There is always struggle, anxiety, and doubt. And even in the deepest hopelessness, God alone remains the one we must address. So without a doubt, many of you are here today and probably you have not gone through anything like the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But no matter your sorrow, no matter what weighs upon your very soul this morning, God has given you a lifeline in the Psalms as a whole, but in the Psalms of lament in particular. And since such burdens are too great to bear in our own strength, will you today lift up your soul as this psalm instructs us in these prayers? casting them on the listening ears of Jesus Christ, who has borne your sin in his body, so you might never sit in darkness forever. This is the call of the psalmist, giving us language for all seasons of the soul. The outline as we look at the text before us from these 12 verses can be laid out as follows. We see very simply, David, the psalmist, cries for help in verses 1 through 6. And while the cries don't go away entirely in the second half of the psalm, there are determined expressions of trust, a slow de-icing of the heart in which the warmth of God's promises and His character begin to take root. As we situate ourselves again in the context of this psalm, we see that it lands toward the, the end of a grouping of psalms. Psalms 138 to 145 give us this final collection of the psalms of David that we have in the Psalter. And while most of David's psalms are concentrated at the beginning of the Psalter, this final collection brings back the voice of the king. It's the return of the king moment before the Psalter ends to remind Israel that the promises made to David and the life of communion with God that David experienced can and should be for you today, for me today. Psalm 143 traditionally has been understood as a penitential psalm. That is to say, a psalm that has at its focus the, a repentant spirit on account of known sin. For we see this in verses 1 and 2 as they uniquely draw attention to David's request for mercy in light of his lack of righteousness, like the rest of mankind, he says. Psalm 143 is an individual lament psalm. There are corporate laments on behalf of large groups of people, but here David laments for his own soul. But unlike the previous psalm, Psalm 142, where David's hiding in a cave, running from Saul, pleading for God's protection in the face of death, 
There is no known context that we have for Psalm 143. Circumstances are left unstated. But before we leave our situating of these psalms for a moment, what are the psalms of lament? Can we belabor this concept just a bit longer? Psalms of lament comprise nearly half of all the psalms, all the 150 psalms, nearly half. That's a significant ratio when you think of how oftentimes these psalms are utilized. Very often, I'd venture to say, we don't go to them as naturally to lament. The Bible is not intended to be a book, though, stuffed in the clouds with little to no real-world use. Not at all. The Bible knows our struggles, and it gives us graciously words and language, even ancient poetry, to mirror wherever our soul finds itself in the trials of life. Lament Psalms are notorious for asking two gut-wrenching questions. God, if you love me, where are you, and can you please make sense of everything going on in front of me? God, if you love me, where are you, and why is all this happening? Learning to lament is one of the most foreign and underutilized gifts from God for God's people today. We just simply don't take up this tool as we ought. The Psalms of Lament teach us what it looks like to appropriately complain to the Lord in a manner that honors Him while moving, moving us from our pain to His promises. Say that again. The Psalms of Lament teach us what it looks like to appropriately complain before the Lord in a way that moves us from our pain to His promises. And that is not to say that there may not be another wave that's going to cycle us right back to even more acute pain as before. But yet that momentum that we see so clearly modeled for us is a determined movement from present pain to powerful, powerful promises. Lament is the minor key tune that is sung by Christians when the sorrows of this world press themselves in upon us. And minor key tunes don't jive very well with American optimism. I remember a a trip over to uh, Lithuania a number of years ago to visit our missionaries over there with Pastor Miller. And so many of the songs had a hauntingly beautiful minor key to them. And as an American, this says, why is everyone so sad? (laughs) Not not the best way to interpret minor keys. That's simply our present-day interpretation of a sound that means something uh, to us, but not, not all the time. And minor keys have a point. It's an entire color palette that is often untapped by the people of God. Minor key tunes are needed when we lament before the Lord. Ours is a culture that esteems the power of positive thinking to get us through the rough patches of life. We've come to genuinely believe that if we work hard enough and we make enough right choices for ourselves, and we, then we'll eventually get what we want in life. Sadly, we all learn at some point or another that life doesn't always turn out as wonderfully as we think it should and according to our perfect plans. 
Life can be downright hard. Whether you're mourning the loss of a loved one, dealing with a surprising diagnosis, or wearied over personal sin that seems to haunt you day after day, shedding tears is a normal part of being human. And while crying may be human, lament is inherently Christian. Innately Godward in its orientation. Lament is a prayer born in pain that guides the Christian into greater trust in God. As Mark of Rogup writes, he says, Lament is a prayer that leads us through personal sorrow and difficult questions into truth that anchors our soul. Before we, have, we even enter into the particulars of Psalm 143, ask yourself a preliminary question. So when suffering comes, and it will, what do you do? Where do you turn? It's coming. It has come. Perhaps you're right in the middle of it right now. What do you want to comfort you? to deliver you, to vindicate you in certain situations, to preserve you, to stabilize your very soul, and finally to satisfy you. This is where there is a strong connection to the psalm we considered last week, Psalm 115, where we underscored the false nature of idols. We noted that the opposite of God is not Satan. No, there is only one true God, and all other so-called gods, as the Apostle Paul writes, are imposters and phonies and fakes and charlatans, deceiving men and women into believing that they deserve the glory that is reserved for God. This is the message of idolatry, false hope. But as the psalmist writes, those who make them become like them. In, in other words, lifeless, unfeeling, unseeing, altogether dead. This is the destiny of all who serve and love idols. But idols have a special pull on us, don't they? And especially when the heat of suffering begins to ramp up, boy, they want to come and get in line and just vie for our affections. And as a defense mechanism, we can all run somewhere for security and hope. Psalm 143 displays the beauty of running to the Lord when sorrows billow over our heads. Should you turn to narcotics, alcohol, the occult, sexual sin, gaming, modern psychology, politics, for there's always somebody that's worse than you, right? Someone crazier out there that you can watch a video about. Do you turn to these things to numb the pain that you experience in some sphere of life. Well, in all of life, but especially in suffering, it's either idols or it's the Lord. The choice is clear. So where will you turn for refuge and for relief? Please be honest with your heart this morning. Midway through this psalm, there's a Selah moment. And I want us to take it. I want us to sit in silence when we get there and think. 
do as the psalmist intends for us to contemplate weighty, significant things. Let's consider now verses 1 through 6, these cries for help. One explanatory note about this psalm that might help visualize the, the bouncing around of the target audience here. We might even call it triangulating our hope. As we walk through this psalm, watch how the psalmist moves uh, about this triangle of primary actors. Sometimes he's addressing God in particular, and then without skipping a beat, he's, he's moving to his own heart and his own need. And then he's looking out to his situation where he sees the enemies pressing in, and then back and forth, the, the triangulation of where his thought is at the moment tends to move within this triangle of Uh, audience and actors here. So each of these actors represent competing agendas, though, with differing goals and and desires. But the psalmist pleads that God's agenda would intervene in such a way that his enemies would be destroyed and that the psalmist would be rescued. With this framework in mind, let's consider the opening plea for mercy in verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give, air, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So right out of the gates here, David begins his plea with this threefold request for God to hear, to give ear, and to answer. But this threefold request is grounded Not in David's situational righteousness, which I should say is not an altogether unknown category that the psalmist would have. There are many psalms, Psalm 35, for instance, in which David says, Vindicate me, O Lord, according to your righteousness. But in this moment, I know of no sin that weighs on my shoulders for which I am to give an account for. So in in this situation, I, I am blameless as best that I know. Why is all this happening? Right? I don't think that's the sense, though, that that David's driving at here. But rather, he grounds this threefold request. Hear, give ear, answer in the character of God. His faithfulness and His righteousness. So David desperately wants the ear of God, but he knows nobody, nobody, not even the king, can swagger up before the presence of God, can just waltz in before God the king of the universe. No way. Here, David seems to imply a more universal sense of righteousness, the kind in which all people require mercy from God in order to stand in, his, in the judgment. We're reminded of Psalm 1, where all that matters is whether you stand in the congregation of the righteous or you perish in the assembly of the wicked. Now, these verses right here quickly call to mind what Christians recognize as their very gospel foundation. All of us must cross this theological bridge if we are to know the privilege of lament. Every one of us must cast ourselves fully on the mercy of God in faith and repentance before we ever move into the courtroom of making petitions before the God of heaven. 
And if you are here today and you've never offered a prayer of lament, asking God for, for help, perhaps you've never done that in your entire life, make today the first. The first and most foundational prayer of lament to God that any human ever prays is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You need mercy, as verse 2 states. You need it, and God has it. Idols do not. No one living is righteous before a holy God, the psalmist states. Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, blessed, that word means deeply, deeply happy. Deeply happy people, the kind that, that sticks and, and doesn't leave as your circumstances move around, that the sticky kind of deep joy is known by those who mourn. What? How does that make any sense? Deeply happy people cry a lot? They do when they know how much they've been forgiven. God promises to comfort and bless all who mourn over their sin and run to Him for forgiveness through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. We'll consider more about the way our Lord embodies the spirit of this psalm a little bit later, but for now I plead with you, whether that is you today, never having lifted perhaps a single prayer of repentance or lament before the Lord, to run to God's Son today for hope, for life, for joy, and for freedom from sin's bondage. Not all psalms of lament begin with lamenting personal sin, like this psalm. But let this be a good check on our modern-day moment. It's entirely possible to be harmed by enemies seeking to crush your life into the ground, as verses 3 and 4 will state, while simultaneously knowing your own desperate need before God as a sinner who stands no higher than one's enemies in terms of level of righteousness before God. So here David, he's, he's got some serious enemies. They are coming after him. He's really concerned. And yet, he has not skipped his own greatest need, his own sin before a holy God. We then see the protection from enemies in verses 3 and 4. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. So we don't know the particular situation that this psalm is speaking to, but crushing King David's life into the ground carries a little bit more weight than you or I being crushed into the ground. Now, what I don't mean there is that King David didn't get an extra dose of the image of God in him, making him more special, but he carried a mantle that you and I don't carry. God had made a specific covenant with David that involved the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham and to Moses and involving a land and a people and a prophetic priest-like king who would draw the worship of all people of the earth. And if the covenant leader of all those promises, David, gets taken out, what does that mean? Well, that calls into question all of God's 
purposes and promises. David's concerned about this as well, not only his own skin. What if the kingdom potentially crumbles? But even on a human level, setting that aside, being tracked down like David describes here in verses 3 and 4 is a harrowing feeling, is it not? I can't say I've ever felt the feeling of having my life pursued by someone else. Really thankful about that, by the way. Hopefully not many of us feel that on the regular. But even in childhood, when there's a mix of play and seriousness going on, some of us remember maybe upsetting uh, the one kid in the class that you were kind of afraid of. I mean, it didn't take me long to remember that memory when I was thinking through this psalm this week. I remember, I don't know what size he was at the time, but Currently, he's about six foot seven, 300 some odd pounds, so he was a big boy. And I remember saying something or doing something to him on a Sunday night after church, and he chased me all over the 26-acre property that our church I grew up on. And I remember my heart being about ready to pound out of my chest, thinking, if this guy catches me, I'm done. I am, I am through. And thankfully, some adult came and kind of told us to knock it off and get back to class. But... Have you ever felt something similar to being pursued with fear of your own safety? And imagine what David must have felt then. We've all certainly read books or seen movies where some innocent party is perhaps placed in witness protection and yet somehow the clever bad guy finds them and within two seconds of having his revenge, the good guy swoops in and saves the day. Well, here it almost reads as if the enemies have won and now stand in triumph over David's broken spirit. Verse 4, the, the full-scale collapsing of David's life causes him to declare, my spirit faints within me. My heart's appalled. And that's probably not the best way to translate that. My heart is overcome with dismay. I'm deeply depressed here. I'm really, really low. David's movement from the character of God in verses 1 and 2 to his own perilous foes in verses 3 and 4 and the despair that they brought him, it leads him to now pondering the past. Pondering the past works of God in verses 5 and 6. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Selah. David ponders these past works of God. But it's not in a nostalgic way as if you think back to that sweet memory of you sitting on that lake up north somewhere and you're just thinking those sweet thoughts, kind of having a smile on your face. That's not, that's not the tone. No, this is... This is something more akin to, Lord, please, I can name a dozen other instances in which you came through for those people. What about me? What about my situation? I'm remembering your past works, and I know what you can do. It's amazing. Would you do it for me now? He ponders the past. Nevertheless, David runs to God's faithful track record of delivering people in distress who call to him in need. He's not running 
to his own heroic accomplishments. And David's got a pretty good resume. It looks pretty good. That's not where he runs. He doesn't look to himself to bolster his confidence as if to say, come on, man, dig deep. You're the king for crying out loud. You've got this thing. I can do it. I can find a way to get these bad guys. I can get myself out of this. Not at all. Not at all. He stretches out his hands, the verse says, before the Lord as this universal symbol of desperation or even a a liturgical worship connected symbol of just utter submission before the Lord. David's spiritual thirst for God is like a parched land in desperate, desperate need of rain. You can imagine that. There have been some pretty intense droughts in the history of the world. The 1930s Dust Bowl is still one of the the worst on record. Like a land that, that so needs water. David says, I'm like that. I'm like that. So before he pivots, he starts to turn his focus to these expressions of trust. Let's take advantage of this Selah moment. The Selah appears right at the center of the psalm, causing the reader to pause and reflect. So take a moment now and sit in silent reflection on these verses as your eyes skim over them and as you think about your own need. Verses 7 through 12 now display David's expressions of trust. He writes here about life before God's presence. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me to know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Here is kind of the point, the point that the psalmist is driving towards, the tip of the spear, the poetical way of getting our attention. Verse 7 is very significant. The simple request is now turned into a time-sensitive, urgent pleading. Answer me quickly. Not just give ear and listen, but, but answer me quickly, Lord. The phrase, hide not your face from me, carries a lot more theological freight than might meet the eye. Let's unpack that for just a moment. Well, in a pretty significant work published pretty recently called God's Relational Presence, Duval and Hayes attempt to identify what is the center of all the themes that run throughout the entire Bible. Is there a center that we can find? That's their, their task. And is there a concept or an idea that binds the rest together? that they all hinge together. So they argue that it is this idea of the God's unswerving commitment that His relational presence would dwell in the midst of His people for blessing. God's relational presence. This captures the essence of what a covenant would convey 
a, a meaningful, lasting relationship. This encapsulates God's plan from the garden that He would walk with His children, Adam and Eve, and that they would serve in His holy presence with joy every day of their life. And the tragedy that is lost in the fall as that relational presence is now barred by an angel with a flaming sword that says, you can't come here anymore. You can't get near me like you used to. But there's still hope. There's one who will come that will crush the head of the serpent who will restore more and more in part as covenant after covenant gains more traction to recover this relational presence before God. They write there, they say, although throughout the Old Testament there are numerous terms and idioms that imply the presence of God, the central and most frequent term is panim. This term occurs over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. The basic meaning of panim is face in the anatomical sense. But the term is used in a wide range of idioms and other figures of speech because face was more expressive than hand or more inclusive than eye. It frequently was used as a synecdoche to represent the entire person. So a synecdoche is, is referring to a part of something as if it's the whole. Because of the ability of panim to express emotions and reactions, it also carries strong connotations of relationship. The term panim describes relationship. That is the word used here. Hide not your face from me is hide not your presence. I need my relational presence to my holy God. David longs to be near his Lord. This is the word that David uses in verse 7. It indicates the fear of losing this relational presence. As the psalm is driving towards its, its middle, which gives us the primary thrust of the psalm, this is it. This is it. This is the same cry David releases in Psalm 51 when he cries, Cast me not away from your presence, your face, your panim. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. The consequence of losing relational presence with God is to go down, down, down to the pit of death. So friends, this is it. Don't miss this. In your despair, in your soul-piercing sorrow, as you acknowledge your own sin as being one of the many who can never stand before God, lacking in righteousness, you must long above all else for the nearness of God. And if you don't want Him, I want to say don't bother with lament, but struggle through lament until this longing grows more and more. He is everything. It's been said there's nobody in heaven enjoying the glories of heaven that didn't want to be near God. It's more than a show and a club that we do together. It is a vibrant relationship before the presence of God. And that cannot be faked. Verse 8, there's a glimmer of hope here. 
It appears as the psalmist speaks of seeing the steadfast love of God in the morning. If you're interacting with someone that's really in a bad spot, whether they're engaging in talk of ending things or, or whatnot, when there's talk of the next day, that's a really good thing, right? They're thinking at least past five minutes from now. You see a little glimmer of that here where the psalmist is in the morning, in the morning. Uh, it feels as if it's all over now, but, but the morning's coming. He reaffirms, in you I trust. As he asked the Lord to make known to him the way he should go. Implying that not only the need for protection, but also for shepherding. Lead me. Tell me where I need to go, Lord. Shepherd me. This request is offered as David's soul is lifted up in humble submission. We then see in verses 9 and 10 the training in God's will. As trust grows in David's heart, we sense a moldable, teachable spirit that's being drawn out more and more as the psalm unfolds. David's enemies come back into focus as he once again asks for deliverance and a refuge from their assaults. Let me read 9 and 10 with us here. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. God's spirit here is named as the shepherding spirit promised to lead David on level ground. As one commentator notes, he says, the need for level ground implies that we are prone to stumble, not merely to stray. A sea change, though, has taken place as David's earlier pleas for mercy and protection are giving way toward the transformation of his own soul as he beseeches the Lord for a transformed heart in the midst of this trial. And in the closing two verses, David recaps earlier statements, but with a renewed hope. Verses 11 and 12, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, and in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Fear of imminent death has been transferred into expectant hope in what God's name will do for David's life. It is for the glory of God's name that David asked for his life to be preserved. So here he's getting his priorities re-straightened out. That it's only according to the will of God that if I take another breath, if I live one more day, my existence is dependent on the independent creator and ruler of all. Returning to that triangle graphic that we showed earlier, God's name being exalted is uppermost in David's motivations. Secondarily, David is confident that his life will be preserved according to God's plan. And lastly, the destruction of David's adversaries will take place for him according to God's steadfast love. And after all, David is a mere servant in the Lord's hands, accomplishing God's plans for his life, 
not his own. Knowing Jesus would have known the Psalms by heart growing up, most likely, singing and praying them so regularly as the primary prayers and songs of Israel, we should ask, how would our Lord have sung or prayed Psalm 143? How is it about Him? How is it fulfilled by Him? Since this is a penitential psalm of lament, there seems to be a problem. If presumably Jesus would have sung all these psalms, well, how could the sinless Son of God sing a psalm asking for forgiveness of sin and to do so with integrity? Wasn't His story. Wasn't true for Him. Well, as God's suffering servant, as the prophet Isaiah refers to Christ, Jesus prays this psalm for us, knowing that He would see it through on our behalf. Praying for us, Jesus sweats great drops of blood in Gethsemane as He asks the Father for another way. But in our place, He enters into judgment, verse 2, but for us. His spirit fainting and failing and deeply discouraged just like David, He stretches out His hands on Calvary's tree, submitting to the Father's will, even crying, I thirst in this parched land. But He experiences no relief. As the evil one pursues Jesus, seeking to crush his life into the ground, all the forces of darkness believe they have triumphed in Jesus' death. But three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the tomb, bringing his soul out of trouble and destroying the last adversary of all, death itself. And perhaps most amazing of all, some of Jesus' final words as He dies in our place are King David's words elsewhere. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The face of His Father. representing the unbroken relational presence that Jesus enjoyed for all eternity is cut off for you in order that sinners would be able to see that radiant face. Amazing. Amazing. As Stuart Townen has put it, How deep the Father's love for us. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. But in the end, the steadfast love of our Savior has preserved our lives. He's brought our souls out of our greatest trouble, our sin. And He's cut off our greatest enemy in separation from God forever. What spectacular hope there is in lament psalms 
Is it not true that deeply happy people mourn? But we do so with joy. For we know the face of God awaits. We see him now in the person of Christ. We will see him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. What hope there is to know the Lord Jesus has and will forever conquer all sin and all sinners who rage against the precious sheep of Christ's flock. No matter just how intense our sorrows become in this life, we have a Savior who poured himself out even unto death so we might lament in hope. Let's pray. Oh God, we turn to you. We, we can feel what the psalmist must have been driving at, for there is no shortage of sorrow left in this world. To live is to experience pain. Some of us get lots more than others. But what hope to know that the love of God in Christ is not distributed with partiality, as if we must line up and show our wealth or show our good deeds, and you will dole out the amount of grace commensurate to our actions. Thank you, Lord. That is not the way you operate. But you are faithful to us because you are faithful to Christ. And because we are in Him, we are safe. Father, we look around and we see the brokenness of this world. We look within and we see the brokenness of our own hearts. And we know we need mercy. And we need level ground. Cause us to have a renewed joy in your presence. Creating more and more of a hunger to see you, to be near you, to live our lives. As the reformers used to say, quorum Deo, before the face of God. May that be the way we live moment by moment. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.